Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks for joining me today. I just finished talking with Richard Jean So about his new book, Trans-Pacific Community, America, China, and the Rise and Fall of a Cultural Network. This came out in 2016 with Columbia University Press. Now, this is a book that is speaking simultaneously to a number of different fields, I think really compellingly in each of the cases. It's a work of literature and the history of literature. It's a work of early 20th century history and history specifically of U.S. um, China relations. It's also a work that's inspired in really interesting ways by threads from media studies and science studies to tell a story of the emergence of not just particular media um, and kinds of mediality for creating community across the Pacific, um, but also ways of thinking about and producing networks, literary networks um, and cultural networks and other sorts of networks. So it's doing a lot of really interesting kinds of work that all articulate with each other. The book does this um, by taking a number of individuals, each chapter takes one of these individuals, and tracking that individual member of the group that Richard's describing over the course of the book, looking at their encounters with other American and Chinese writers, and looking also at their integration into a broader cultural network. And in each case, um, readers will find some figures that they might be very familiar with, um, perhaps Pearl Buck, perhaps you've heard of Lausha, and some that they might not be so familiar with. But in each of these cases, these figures are embedded or enmeshed really interestingly in not just cultural networks, um, trans-Pacific conversations and communities, but also particular media like telegraphy, like radio, um, like uh, particular forms of writing, the typewriter, airmail. So there's a lot of really interesting uh, attentiveness to media and communication in the course of this story. So I will let you get to it. I'll leave it there, um, but I'll just suggest listen in particular for the moments where um, you'll hear us talk about um, how excited some of the archival sources that Richard found and work with were. Um, so there are moments of the conversation you'll hear a real joy about the experience of working with um, particular textual materials in the archives. And also, um, if you get to the very end, you'll hear us talking about the FBI and Mr. Shu, S-H-O-E. So stay tuned um, and you'll get to that story before you are done. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoy and let's get to it. I'm here to talk with Richard Jean So about his new book, Trans-Pacific Community. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. And thank you both for writing a book that's so fascinating and also for making time to talk with me about it today. Welcome, and I'm really looking forward. Uh, yeah, thank you for having me, Carla. Really looking forward to this. Yes. 
So let's start big, Richard. Let's start with the traditional opening question. What brought you to the field? And specifically, how did you come to decide to work on modern literature, um, especially with at least one foot in Asian and Asian American studies? Um, yeah, so I guess it first depends on which field you're talking about. Um, in terms of modern Chinese literature, um, I'm a true interloper latecomer. Um, my undergrad and early graduate school um, education was really focused on American literature, especially 20th century American literature. Um, and that was always my primary passion and my, my interest and focus. Um, and I became interested in Asian American studies um, in the early part of graduate school um, in the early 2000s. Um, and at that time, that field was very um, not very particularly comparative or transnational. Um, and the major rubrics were things like Orientalism or minority discourse. And, um, and so even as late as 2003, I had never taken a Chinese language class or a literature class. I couldn't read a character of Chinese. Um, and uh, I came to this, the, the field um, of Chinese literature um, through this question that was um, troubling me. Um, and the short version of this, this question was, um, I, I want to know more about the early uh, formation of the, the, the concept of an Asian American person or subject, um, which would be something like the 1930s or 1940s. And, um, I was I was doing some research on Pearl Buck, and Buck, as you know, had spent a lot of time in China, and there was an interesting conundrum around uh, her role in some legislation that was important to uh, the legal definition of the Asian American person in the early 1940s and her time in China. That was, to me, a lacuna in knowledge because um, to fully reconstruct that history, you have to know something about China. Uh, about Chinese literature, um, Chinese culture. And so um, to kind of just resolve or answer a question in my mind um, that was really troubling me, I decided to learn Chinese. Uh, and I thought it would be much easier. I thought I could do it like in a year. Uh, it, became, it, became, it became something like 10 years or it's still ongoing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I can talk, have you talk more about that, but I came to this field through a kind of research problem or question and also a personal question, too, at the same time. Um, and I began the process of getting into Chinese studies through that. And eventually, over time, I put together my two interests um, through that project. That's exactly how I came to the field, too. So I completely am vibing with what you're saying. Awesome. Yeah, that's why I started um, working in Chinese, too. It was just a, I was interested in a question. So I am totally in support of that. And anybody listening right now who also has had that experience, you are in good company and come join the team. <laughs> so the, the book that we're talking about today, Trans-Pacific Community, proposes a new conceptual framework for understanding what the book calls the intellectual and cultural relations between East and West, China and America. It focuses on a group of American and Chinese writers in the decades after World War One, And this period winds up being really important and fascinating for all kinds of reasons. You're showing here a transformation in U.S.-China relations. There were transformations in the world economy and in international politics, amongst other kinds of changes. Now, one of the really interesting kinds of changes, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, um, in the hour to come, was the rise of a new era, as you put it here, in media technologies. And this included the formation of a massive technological infrastructure between the U.S. and East Asia, and in part, this was due to radio and telegraph technology and a trans-Pacific 
transportation system. You're also showing here a concomitant rise of a discourse of communication specifically. Okay, so this is just to lay a little bit of a groundwork for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book to kind of understand um, the foundation we're talking about. So Richard, how did you come to this project? You've said a little bit about how you came to Pearl Buck specifically, and she's um, certainly one of the main figures in the book, but more broadly, what brought you to an interest in this particular problem and these particular um, characters as uh, a way of understanding this problem? Um, yeah, no, thank you for that uh, summary to the project. That's very, that's a very um, pithy and good summary. Um, specifically, this project, um, it began as a kind of... Um, uh, uh, almost a biography of, of a group of people. Um, I, 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 the project began with this interest in Pearl Buck. Um, I was very interested in the early 20th century just because um, it seemed like um, I want to know more about, again, the emergence of Asian American culture, um, which tends to be located in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, but the more I read into that period, it seemed that, again, there was a, a large lacuna um, and understanding um, the things that came before, it seemed that the genealogy for these things in the 1960s and 1970s, um, Asian American cultural nationalism, things like that, um, uh, took place earlier, or the genealogy stretched back into the interwar period, the 1920s and 1930s. So, um, and it seemed like the main figure for this, thinking about this, this problem, uh, was Pearl Buck. And, and through that, um, a whole window of this, broader history, I saw the early outlines of this massive cultural exchange between uh, specifically China and America in this period that um, I felt that we didn't really know enough about. So I began with Buck, and then um, I spent a lot of time just looking at her social networks, her cultural networks, her coterie, and one by one, um, figures kind of came into view. Um, something I do in the book is I try to start each new chapter um, by showing like a very concrete link between um, between the, the previous chapter's character, uh, main protagonist and the next chapter's protagonist to give a sense of really the sense of coterie or connections between these figures. And so I think the order was uh, Buck led me to Lin Yutang. Uh, obviously, they're very close. And from Lin Yutang, um, I discovered uh, Agnes Medley. From Smedley, um, I discovered Laosha, and then from Laosha, I discovered Paul Robeson, and um, it became a really uh, emerged as a very coherent, interconnected community, which itself is very interesting because these are very different people. Um, and um, it, I, I see, I saw the research as kind of like un- unraveling this thread of connection between these figures, and these figures, in my mind, emerged as the most interesting and important for this period in terms of the bigger question of just understanding. Um, the basis for U.S.-China cultural interaction in the early 20th century. Awesome. So, yeah. so, Richard, how did the project change from its instantiation as a dissertation to its transformation into a book? Were there any kind of major transformations, for example, in the way you were conceptualizing the problems, the way you were structuring it, or kind of any other notable part of the process you'd like to share? Um, yeah, actually, I, I'd love to talk about this at length um, because there are major transformations. Um, and here I should thank my colleagues at um, uh, the U of Chicago uh, English Department because they really pushed me to um, to really expand and enrich the project um, organically how this happened. So I, I wanted to revise it, but uh, more than just for the sake of revising it, the substantive intellectual development that happened was um, the dissertation was really just a study of political and 
literary exchange um, with these four figures. The Robeson uh, chapter I had not yet figured out for the dissertation. So for these, basically two Chinese writers and two American writers, so Smedley and Bach and Lin Yutang and Laosha, uh, um, for the dissertation, um, and I was tra- uh, uh, tracing these patterns of, again, political and literary exchange. Um, a lot of that made it into the book, but um, what I figured out um, once I graduated that um, this mode of interaction was really distinct from 19th century versions of U.S.-China interaction, uh, the more majority of which is really rooted in Orientalism, kind of like uh, exotic ox- or Occidental forms of perception. Um, and it's just intuitively I want to figure out why that model changed in the early 20th century. And the more I thought about it, and also just a very intuitive explanation is that um, uh, Chinese, it was easier to communicate and encounter people from China or America on the opposite shore starting roughly after World War One, And then it became – I was doing a lot of reading and media and communications history – um, and then I did a lot of research into the Trans-Pacific, uh, its version of media and communications history, and the missing piece. So if I, I would describe it as if the dissertation had kind of two legs of a table, say political and literary history, media history kind of provided the third leg, kind of made the other two parts make sense. Mm-hmm. And that, um, as, as you're describing in your um, really nice um, description of the project, um, the major revolution in the early 20th century for the Trans-Pacific was the creation or the availability of these new technologies that made a kind of interaction um, suddenly possible, that you could communicate very quickly with people very far away, and tropes of Orientalism start breaking down because once you can you know, interact with people very different from you, um, you start seeing them less as exotic oddities and more people you can talk to, share ideas with and collaborate. And that to me was the missing explanatory component for why there was all this cultural exchange happening in the 1920s. It's because suddenly it was easier to talk to people really far away um, as a kind of short, shorthand. So, yeah. Let's actually, this is a, a great way to start getting right into it. Um, so let's actually take this point about media um, and media and communications histories and use this as a way to start diving into the book. So a central claim of the book is that, and this is in the words of the book, literary histories of U.S.-China cultural encounter in the 20th century must also, in part, be histories of media. And this is true. I mean, we see this coming up throughout all of the chapters of the book. It's a really strong element of the kind of um, collective arguments that the chapters are making and also the contributions I think they're making to a number of different fields. So the book recasts the Pacific in the 20th century as what you call a site of mediation. And you develop a notion of what you call textual mediation as a way of developing um, this idea of the Pacific as a site of mediation. So as a way of starting to get into um, or further into the ideas of the book, Richard, can you talk about this notion of textual mediation and its significance for the work that you're doing um, with the book in terms of media studies? Um, Yeah, thanks. Actually, um, those Two sentences are two of my favorite lines in the book. So oh, I love that. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thank you for that. Um, yeah, so um, this was a long process, as, as you know, as someone who's written um, uh, a serious academic book, that um, it's you write the chapters, and then when you're trying to come up with the higher-level concepts, it takes a long time for things to crystallize um, for, for the book's introduction and the framing. Um, I knew as I was writing the chapters that the Orientalism – framework was was limited uh, for what I wanted 
do, but more importantly for the materials I was working with and the stories I was discovering. Um, and I should also say that I was really always drawn to Orientalism. Um, I actually studied with Ever Said before he passed away in graduate school. So that was a very powerful uh, framework for me. Um, and it's only through discovering this, um, this history that I realized that it demanded a different kind of methodology, a different conceptual framework. Um, and, it kind of, and it came together, I would say, um, I was looking for an account of um, literature in a transcultural context, not based on representation and a keyword that is um, opposite to or uh, supplemental to representation, of course, is mediation. If you're not representing something, you're kind of medi- mediating two things with the text. And um, I would say the, the linchpin for helping me figure this out was really reading deeply into Bruno Latour's work, um, who, um, as, as you know, is, is very important for media studies and thinking about objects and um and how they uh, mediate relations between humans and other objects and things like that. Um, so, uh, and I read some really great work in the history of science by, um, uh, there's a great book on um, on, on bro- uh, the broker world, I think, by uh, Simon Schaefer, um, mm-hmm. uh, Del Borgo, and some other people. Um, so it was really from the history of science, people working out of the Latorian framework for thinking about, um, also Peter Gallus, and thinking about um, how scientific innovation happens through these trading zones of ideas and actors and uh, and uh, objects, kind of uh, enabling those um, connections between different ontologies and epistemologies and so forth. So that was really helpful for me to start thinking about um, books as objects in the world, um, physical things um, that help to mediate the relations between things that are very different. So say America and China or um, American Chinese concepts. Um, but I should say specifically um, the, the, the kind of on the ground trigger for this was um, discovering Lao Shi's um, handwritten manuscripts for um, Sushi Tong Tong, uh, Four Generations Under One House, um, where um, I talk about this in a book chapter, but um, where the, the page itself became the site by which Lao Shi and his translator really worked out ideas. And I really started seeing uh, books and pages um, as, as physical things where that aren't just, uh, you know, like a representation of China, but the place really where writers can really work out ideas about China and become a much more complex uh, account of China that's not based on representation. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say, yeah, it was it was readings um, into a certain tradition, a Latorian framework combined with some just archival documents I was finding that, uh, that kind of trigger this uh, conceptual framework of textual mediation as something that would allow me to think outside of Orientalism as an interpretive apparatus. Right. Now, as someone, um, I, I, I love that you just mentioned all this stuff, because as someone who spends a lot of time in STS or science studies, one of the things that was really striking to me um, as a reader was the way that you were invoking and using this idea of networks, right? And this definitely comes up, and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about this at more length in this chapter five um, that you are kind of alluding to, where you talk about Laosha's work and um, the notion of a literary network, but specifically these archival materials from Harvard's Radcliffe Library, which were like these draft materials for the co-translation of this book you just mentioned, um, mm-hmm. Sister Tong Tong, um, translated as The Yellow Storm. It's so fascinating, and I just want to flag this for listeners um, in case we don't have a chance to talk about this in detail when we get to chapter five, because yeah. this is like not just your um, kind of your what, what we might imagine to be a kind of 
normal process of um, translators working together to, or an author working with a translator to translate a text, right? This was an extraordinarily fraught process um, where he was working with Ida Pruitt to translate this text. And we really see that coming off uh, the page that you give us or the pages you give us. So yeah, that's a super awesome chapter. Um, and we'll get to that in a little bit more detail and also um, in terms of how it speaks to or might speak to the importance of networks um, mm-hmm. here to the story. But before we get there, there's a first, a second, a third, and a fourth chapter. So let's try to get a little <laughs> bit into those. Um, so chapter one looks closely at the collaboration between Agnes Smedley and China, Chinese writer Ding Ling. Now, it looks at Smedley's efforts, among other things. And I should say, just as a kind of oral footnote, there's a lot going on in all of these chapters. And we're just going to kind of scratch the surface. But um, listeners who become readers will find a lot more detail um, in all of these chapters. But so one of the things that this does is looks at Smedley's efforts to publicize the nationalist imprisonment of Dingling in 1932 and to coordinate a partnership between the ACLU and the China League for Civil Rights in a kind of trans-Pacific political campaign. Now, you show here that these, this effort, um, on at least in part on the part of Smedley, to join America and China to a common conception of democracy, this is another theme that threads throughout the book, depended on new forms of communication and expression. And you talk a lot here about the significance of the telegraph, mm-hmm. specifically in enabling this. So Richard, I'm going to keep this fairly open um, and just invite you to talk about that part of what's happening in the chapter. For you, what's most interesting about the way that the Telegraph specifically um, as a medium is enabling the development of a common conception of democracy? Um, yeah, this this also came as a surprise in the archive that um, I was led by the materials, and that initially it became it began as as a study of um, a group of um, American intellectuals associated with the uh, American Civil Liberties Union, so Roger Baldwin, Agnes Medley, um, basically hashing out ideas. Um, with Chinese intellectuals, so uh, Song Qingling and Dingling uh, on behalf of Dingling, um, trying to figure out how to uh, make a case, a legally rigorous case um, for Dingling's uh, civil rights um, to possibly put pressure on the KMT to free her from prison that her civil rights were being violated. So um, yeah, in the initial version of that chapter, this was a dissertation version, um, I just was looking at their correspondence and I was interested in the kind of political theoretical arguments that they were trying to figure out. Um, how could someone in China be eligible for, the co- for, a co- for a Western concept like Western democracy, Western civil rights? Um, how do you how do you extend that concept outside of the United States into, say, semi-colonial uh, Shanghai? Um, but and so that was really interesting to me. But um, I really started noticing that um, that uh, a lot of this was happening over telegraph. Um, and um, the the thing that occurred to me was um, that the, the medium of the exchange of the ideas mattered. So this is how uh, media theorists like uh, Kittler and McLuhan are very important to me that I just felt that I could not ignore the the materiality, the medium by which they were communicating. And, um, and I found some interesting things um, that the telegraph was very important in that the speed by which it enabled the exchange of ideas was very important. Um, and 
the the form of the telegraph itself uh, became a mechanism to make certain appeals in that um, they used kind of like telegraphic language to make uh, these claims or these arguments or just the, the condition of Dingling's imprisonment more vivid, um, such that the telegraph, as compared to, say, a novel or just a newspaper article, was somehow could be more powerful in conveying this uh political outrage and crisis to a broad number of people um, because a lot of these telegraphs were circulating between uh, large groups, of, like large factions of leftists in various countries, um, including Russia, which I never got into. I wasn't able to. But um, but um, but yeah, in short, um, the telegraph was was a new medium that has certain advantages, a kind of pithy like nature in the writing, but also a kind of speed and ability to be disseminated broadly that gave additional power to this transnational political campaign. Um, so, yeah. You also make the point in this chapter, and I think this is really interesting, that this mode of communication or medium of communication helped um, a new form of writing to emerge as a result. And you call this long-distance realism. Do you want to speak a little bit about that? Uh, yes. Um, this work is uh, very much indebted to some important work in Victorian studies. So I want to give a shout out to Richard Menke's book, Telegraphic Realism, um, and also a book by Kate Hales. Um, uh, uh, the title escapes me, but she's also written on uh, the telegraph. But um, yeah, this idea of telegraphic realism, um, these these people involved in this campaign were also writers and a lot of them were realist authors. And um, I found evidence to make an argument that the Telegraph was imbuing their sense of their use of literary realism and vice versa, a kind of synthesis, um, drawing on the strength of both. So realism, of course, has natural strengths, uh, but realism, uh, but Telegraph, the Telegraph also has some a special powers too, uh, namely a kind of very vivid, uh, brief kind of form of expression that's very modern. Um, and I found that um, these writers discover that um, in some ways uh, writing their stories, adopting some of the formal qualities of the telegraph can make some of their writing more powerful and more appealing, particularly in conveying things like social outrage or political crisis. Um, and so, yeah, I find evidence that um, uh, how some of these writers are writing. So say Dingling or Smedley was influenced by the telegraph to write in a particularly strong uh, political idiom, uh, but also how these stories are sometimes translated were also influenced by a kind of telegraphic uh, style. Um, and all these just added up to a kind of what I would call long-distance realism, which is a form of realism that uh, is sort of mobilized by a telegraphic ethos to make it travel very far and wide like a telegraph. Now, the second chapter also charts the emergence or the creation of a kind of realism. This is a sort of hybrid form of realism, as you call it, um, by Pearl Buck in her work. So this is chapter two, and it looks at the work of Pearl Buck and her relationship with Chinese culture and writers by focusing on her work, The Good Earth. Now, you show here that she's creating this hybrid form of realism that mix um, American realism and the classical Chinese novel, with the water margin being an especially important um, example um, in of the classical Chinese novel that she's working with. And you talk a lot about um, her engagement with the water m- margin in this chapter. So she finds a kind of 
of what you call latent democracy in the water margin. And this is all part of a larger point of this chapter um, <coughs> where you are showing us that through her novel, The Good Earth, she's developing and describing a kind of natural democracy. Okay, so since democracy, this has already sort of come up a little bit in our conversation, this is something that's a thread throughout the entire book. Um, can you talk a little bit about this idea of natural democracy? Um, why is it important for Perkak? And for you, what's most interesting about the way she's developing um, that idea in terms of the larger arguments that this chapter and the book are making? Um, yeah, thanks for that summary. So, um, I mean, the book really began, I mean, the, the Buck chapter is really the heart of the book. It's the first chapter I wrote for the dissertation. Um, it's probably the most substantial in the book. Um, and for the political argument, it's true that um, the book's interest in democracy emerging, emerging in a, a very in a very transnational Pacific oriented way in this period. Um, that's one of the central claims of the book. And you're precisely right that the book chapter uh, does the most work in articulating this. And this discovery that I made, which um, was really the first discovery of um, all the research, starting with the dissertation, in which, and what I found most compelling about this project, is 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 precisely that that um, that uh, in the early 20th century, um, a lot of Chinese intellectuals uh, were already reading rereading Shui Huizhuan as articulating a kind of uh, latent democratic ethos that resonates with um, Western accounts of the democratic ideal uh, in the 19-teens, uh, 1920s. Uh, so someone like Liang Qichao has written extensively about this. Uh, Buck's really inter- interesting intervention into this is that um, she wanted to push that argument even further to say that, um, that uh, there's a commensurability between um, uh, the, a Chinese discovery of a latent, you know, democratic genealogy within Chinese culture, so something like Shui Huizhuan, and um, in American ideas of democracy, particularly Jeffersonian democracy. And um, I find evidence in the Good Earth and other texts that she's precisely writing these books to uh, articulate that commensurability, to imagine a very distinct international, global, specifically inflected idea of democracy that really harmonizes Chinese ideas of democracy from a kind of Ming-Ching context with an American Jeffersonian idea of democracy. And to me, it's a very radical idea because um, it really um, provincializes an American idea of democracy through a kind of, you know, routed through um, an early modern Chinese uh, lens. Um, so it's particularly that, that synthesis I find most interesting, that, that Buck was really intent on revealing that, that synthesis, that, that unification of Chinese and American notions of democracy, but particularly through an early modern or 17th, 18th century uh, genealogy. So very, very surprising to me, very interesting. Great. Now the chapter is also doing um, a bunch of other kinds of work and we won't have time uh, in the context of this conversation to talk at length about it, but I just want to flag um, some of that for listeners. The, the chapter, in addition to doing all the kinds of work that you just described is also tracking Buck's novel's reception in China and America as a way to understand the Pacific book trade. And this is a trade that was made possible going back to the significance of media, just um, briefly, as you as you say in the book, by new developments in airmail, which I think is really interesting. You talk here about the ways that the circulation of the book between the U.S. and China created feelings of what you call historical simultaneity between the two. So that's another really interesting part of what's going on here. 
And you also described the way that Buck's work and its reception helped form what you call a U.S.-China cultural public and helped articulate a Chinese-American political subject. So this is just to say for listeners, there's a lot more going on in that chapter, and I hope um, they'll have a chance to read it um, because there's lots of great detail. But um, we need to get to Chapter 3 because Chapter (laughs) 3 is my everything. Really, this chapter is my everything. Um, I mean, all the chapters are great, but I love of this chapter. Um, so chapter three is fascinating. This looks at the collaboration between Paul Robeson, and you've mentioned him briefly before. He's a, he was a very um, well-known, famous African-American musician and actor, and Liu Liangmo, a left-wing Chinese musician and writer. Okay, super fascinating. We could seriously talk for two hours about this, <laughs> and we will one day. We, we will, will one day. Will. But for now, let's just kind of give listeners a sense of some of the interest of the chapter. Okay, um, so let's start with Robeson. In the 1930s, he develops an idea of, um, in the words of the book, an Afro-Chinese cultural convergence and affinity. Now, in part, this is built around his idea of what's called the human stem. All right, so Richard, briefly, what's this idea of the human stem in the context of what's interesting for you about Robeson's work? Um, yeah, so the research on um, Robeson began with this human stem idea that he started developing in the 1930s. Um, so Robeson, just as some background, um, was a truly interesting person, uh, probably best known as a, as a major African-American singer and political activist, but um, was a real intellectual. So he spent um, a couple of years at SOAS in London studying Asian languages, so was um, was a kind of linguistic genius, um, knew many, many languages, including Russian, Hebrew, and Chinese um, but he was particularly drawn to Chinese and China, uh, Chinese culture. Um, and he did a lot of research uh, at SOAS, also at Columbia, uh, starting in the 1930s. And he was obsessed with finding uh, the basis for um, a connection between these two cultures. Um, and he found it in this idea that um, that uh, at, at, at base, um, Chinese and African-American cultures – uh, share a basis in the pentatonic, which is a kind of musical scale that's most common in uh, folk songs, uh, ballads, and things like that. Um, so he developed this human stem concept to say that um, all cultures um, with a particular disposition that he called democratic flow from a common stem, which he names as the pentatonic scale, a kind of cultural basis. And um, he really believed that it's African-American or, say, african culture and Chinese culture articulate the human stem at its kind of um, at its most foremost node point in that um, it's really that they are kind of at the origins of the basis for this this connection between all cultures and they share a profound bond uh, a cultural bond in their shared basis in this pentatonic scale. So Leo actually tracks him down, right? Finds him. They start working together, and together they develop a notion of pentatonic democracy. Um, and you've just kind of talked a little bit about that, right? This um, based on the commonalities of the pentatonic scale, or like the black keys on a piano, um, is how I think the book describes it. I think that's a useful way of visualizing this. Um, what is particular? about the form of democracy, um, if, you know, if there's anything that you'd want to add beyond what you've already said, which is, I think, um, fairly complete, but is there anything else you'd want to add about um, what particular form of democracy this pentatonic democracy is beyond what we've talked about? Um, yeah, I would say that they were very 
again, and, and a lot of Robeson's thinking was um, not what I would describe as rigorous scholarship. And it's, but what I'm interested in is um, how he thought about this because it became that it, it took on a social force, even if it had some dubious intellectual um, claims. Um, I think the main thing that he was interested in was um, that the pentatonic, which is the black keys on the scale, is often the basis for um, full culture, um, culture identified with uh, rural cultures, um, again, kind of like African-American or rural Chinese cultures. And um, he really wanted to position that against uh, the diatonic um, scale, which is the white keys, which he associated with, say, um, European classical music. And he, he creates a kind of binary to say that um, that kind of music and culture uh, has has kind of left the people. It's been sort of uh, relocated in cities and um, uh, elite locations. And he identified then um, that kind of music, which is based again more on the uh, diatonic, um, as, as as not democratic. So he really believed that the pentatonic, in terms of its uh, relationship with the people, the folk, was uh, a cultural basis for imagining uh, a political democracy. So the pentatonic demo- democratic idea is very important in that it builds from the human stem idea, which is which is a purely a, a cultural uh, claim, and then inflecting it with a with a democratic with a democratic. Argument. And this is really interesting for anyone who's spent any time reading um, W.E.B. Du Bois' The Souls of Black Folk, right? Because there's also a really interesting thread through that book of music and sound. And so there's lots of resonances to kind of choose a perhaps particularly apt um, figure for this. Um, there's lots of resonances here for me that speak to some other stuff I'm interested in. But one of the really fascinating things about what's happening in this chapter related to that is the way that it's linking sound and the sonic to democracy, to politics, um, to the way all this is playing out. And sound and the sonic becomes super, super important to a lot of elements um, of the story of this chapter. So um, one of the things that particularly interested Robeson about the Chinese language, as you showed here, was its sound, right, its sonic aspects. Um, you talk about the significance of the auditorium and the sonic aspects of the auditorium as a space for generating particular forms and experiences of sound um, in the way that these two people work together. But you also talk, and, and this is what I'd like to ask, ask you to speak uh, just briefly about, um, because selfishly, I just think it's really <laughs> cool, and, and I get to ask you questions. So um, so you talk about the medium of the voice, right, the recording and dissemination of the voice um, as being central to the work that Leo and Robeson are doing together, and the kinds, specifically, the kinds of proximity that they created, right? The kinds of likeness and proximity that they're creating. So Richard, can you talk a little bit about that for you? Um, what's most interesting here about what's happening around the voice as a medium and in general, the sonic and its importance to this chapter? Um, yeah, this went through a couple iterations. This, this chapter went through um, a bunch of revision. I should thank an anonymous um, book reviewer at Columbia University Press for helping me with this. But um, but yeah, the, the voice um, it began with just a study precisely of the voice or a representation of the voice um, insofar as uh, the, the argument I was interested in making is that um, the book really uh, – accelerates in this chapter because I move from a literary context to a purely sonic context. And the claim is that 
when we move out of what is often called a letter of modernity, so books, printed books and novels and things like that, that um, the, the possibility for new juxtapositions and combinations of otherwise antithetically defined things like uh, black culture, Chinese culture, can somehow have more mingling and fusion uh, once you leave that letter of modernity and move to um, uh, a sonic context. There's just it's less constrained by convention or, say, like 300 years of the printed press and, and its various norms. Um, so, yeah, that's how it began. I was really interested in the kind of liberating force uh, that the boys would have just sort of singing, uh, that Robeson singing Chinese or Liu Liang Ma singing um, African-American gospel in Chinese, that this there, there wasn't a sense of violation that, that the voice itself could contain this juxtaposition um, in a very liberated way. So that was the first part of it. The second part of it, though, was um, the media question, which is, um, despite that, there is a kind of shock or surprise to see um, a black man singing in Chinese, which was the case in the early 1940s when Robeson uh, performed these songs in concert. And that's unavoidable because that starkness, that surprise, uh, is, as I think, just intuitively and historically was was, was surprising. And um, this is where I got very interested in the history of sound technology, where the more I read into it, so Emily Thompson's work and uh, David Sweetman's work, that it was also a time when um, the voice was becoming severed from the body, that the, the voice itself could just circulate freely, not only in auditoriums, but just society through new recordings. Um, and a lot of the work in African-American studies sees that as very damaging in that it allowed, say, white listeners to consume the black voice without the kind of lingering, the looming threat of a kind of black body. Um, and that, that research is completely accurate and it's excellent, and I learned a lot from it. Um, what I found, though, was um, for this particular juxtaposition, it kind of helped in that um, – that the, the the black voice in Chinese or the or Chinese in the black voice, because it was circulating and it was sort of disembodied, it benefited from this open circulation in auditoriums and just you know uh, streets, you know, via um, via uh, radio and things like that. That um, that again kind of liberated. Uh, it made more possible liberatory expressions. Uh, that otherwise might be policed, this kind of juxtaposition of black and Chinese, if people were focusing too much on the visual spectacle of a black man singing Chinese. So in my reading, it's really this new media environment that really liberated voices from their initial context, which, again, in one context, you know, black culture can be very, very toxic and damaging, was in this context, um, uh, in a way, empowered both Leo and Robeson to, again, experiment and see how far they could push this, this collaboration and this, this kind of voice. Great. Thank you. So as we move from here to the next chapter, we move to a chapter, chapter four, that looks closely at the work of Lin Yutang. Now, in the 1930s, he fled to America and particularly interesting in this chapter. And there's lots we could talk about here, but just uh, for the moment, we'll talk about this, is the way that Lin made use of new technologies to extend what the novel could do. Um, so you talk here about something that's actually been emerging um, as a, an interest and a concern in a, in a number of different works lately, right? The, the interest in the typewriter um, and the typewriter in China in particular, um, the typewriter in Japan. Um, there are a number of really cool people working on this stuff, and that's a really interesting part of this chapter. But that's part of a larger argument that you're making here um, for the emergence of what you call typographic ethnic modernism. 
on the part of Lanyutang. So that's actually what I'd love to hear a little bit more about um, as we explore this chapter, Richard. Can you talk about this idea of typographic ethnic modernism um, and its connection with Lynn's work, but also its connection with the larger, perhaps, goals of the book methodologically? Um, yeah, so first, um, you're completely right that there's a lot of new interest in um, the Chinese typewriter. Um, here I should really give a shout out to um, a few scholars and friends of mine, um, Tom Mullaney, Jing Su, and uh, John Williams, who have done really fascinating work on the Chinese typewriter, and you should all Listeners should all check out their work. Um, I, I, I'm indebted to their research. Um, the way that I entered my specific uh, work on the New Tong is, um, again, um, I first came to thinking about the New Tong um, in the context of this literary and political context where I was very interested in his collaboration with uh, Pro Bakken, Richard Walsh, uh, his publisher and his editor, uh, in writing basically the first – what was I, what was marketed in the public as the first Chinese-American novel uh, called Chinatown Family, which was written in the late 1940s. And um, Lin was pressured by Walsh and Bach to start writing about Chinese people in America because of this domestic turn after the war in American culture. They wanted to basically sell books. And so um, – I was struck by he was being forced to write in a particular way that I would call a kind of ethnographic style, which is common for Asian American writers based on expectations of publishers to say that uh, publishers say like uh, you, what you should write about is yourself because, you know, there's ethnographic impulse or uh, mandate by publishers. And so we see that happening in, in the new tongue and in the first version of this chapter, um, I find some really interesting ways that Lynn is pushing back on Buck and Walsh to what they wanted was just a kind of traditional realist book about Chinese people living in Chinatown. But but Lynn was really an experimental, interesting writer, and he, he was very interested in modernism. And so I found some interesting ways he was deforming their expectations for what an Asian-American novel should look like based on his sort of experiments with modernism. The way that the media stuff came in is um, precisely when I was revising this for – uh, the book after the dissertation, um, I again found media studies, media history allowed me to kind of extend and ramp up the argument that I was already making if I looked at things like materiality or technology. And specifically, I found that it was um, his failed experiment in building a typewriter gave him the best his best ideas for uh, creating a very interesting writing style for Chinatown Family that would defy – um, the realist style that uh, Walsh and Buck really wanted him to uh, adopt. And the way I describe this is um, when Lin resorted to technology, it kind of interrupted or disrupted standard ways in which East and West were related to each other in that his writing became much more experimental. Uh, he was able to play with language. He was able to mix Chinese and English Character, uh, words in really novel ways. So I would describe it as technology provides a leverage to do really interesting transnational things that kind of defy the mandates or expectations of nation-based cultures or ideologies. Um, and so that's I put those things together for this um, typographic uh, ethnic modernism to say that ethnic modernism is one thing, uh, but when it's animated by a technological impulse or ethos, it becomes even more experimental and interesting. 
And so one of the things also um, related to this that the chapter is doing is showing the ways in which print technology um, was considered to be a way to democratize China and to develop an idea of what you call the Republican Chinaman here. Um, So this is in the title of the chapter, and it's also a really important figure here um, in this context. Did you want to say anything more, Richard, about this particular notion of the Republican Chinaman as it's um, animated here? Uh, yeah, it's um, it's, it's it's kind of an elaborate argument. I I'll try to I'll try to explain this in a way that doesn't sound ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but um, the main idea is that um, how it all came together is um, Lin Yutong in the 1930s back in China had a lot of interesting ideas about how to imagine a democratic Chinese subject. And the main thing is um, he believed that uh, stemming back to uh, writings by John Dewey and the young Americans who he studied with and he knew well in New York when he studied at Columbia, that the key to a, at least a, a culturally democratic disposition for anyone is the ability to have free and open expression and communication. Mm-hmm. And he really uh, wanted to, in his own writing, model an idea of a Republican Chinaman, a fully democratized Chinaman through, through a kind of liberal uh, ethos by uh, producing a writing that was fully expressive. So his real conflict with Buck and Walsh was that they were trying to really constrain his ability to express himself um, when he was trying to do much more interesting modernist typographically experimental writing. And so um, not only creating the image or the representation of this figure in his writing, he also wanted to uh, materialize a kind of practice uh, for himself that would art- that would express um, a kind of democratic ethos uh, for a Chinese writer that would amount to something that he called, again, a Republican Chinaman. So it's basically a cultural idea of democracy that what makes someone democratic is this ability for free and open expression, particularly through creativity and writing. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so now we are coming to Chapter 5. This is the last body chapter before the epilogue, and this is where we get the case um, that we were talking about before that's so interesting in terms of the archival materials that you were working on. This is a chapter that looks very closely at Laosha's visit to the U.S. from um, 1946 to 1950. And one of the first ideas that comes up here as a way of kind of motivating why the U.S. State Department um, might have been interested in inviting Laosha um, to the U.S., how that resonance might have worked, is the notion of propaganda or xuanquan. So can you talk a little bit to kind of start us off in our exploration of this chapter about Laosha's notion of propaganda um, or what you know we're translating here as propaganda and the ways in which that's articulating with broader notions um, that facilitate this exchange? Um, yeah, so the research began with such a crazy historical incident or paradox, which is um, as late as 1946, the U.S. State Department invited Laosha, fairly well-known leftist at the time, to uh, be a guest of the state. Um, and I really want to understand how that could possibly be, because obviously by 1950, Laosha is a hardcore Maoist and is writing these screeds against America. So those four years, in my mind, before I began the research, must have been super interesting, <laughs> because how could that possibly happen? And um, to your question about propaganda, or rather uh, Shen Chuan, um, and I do make the point that's not a great, um, in this context, not a great translation, because um, 
It's precisely that um, the State Department and Laosha had essentially, or they believed essentially commensurable ideas of the social purpose of literature, which is to disseminate particular ideologies, which in, in one frame we could call propaganda. Uh, here I call Shun Chuan because it's more of a harmony between aesthetic practice and political practice. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I did a lot of, uh, I discovered a, real, a lot of interesting correspondence between Laosha and U.S. State Department officials um, in, in State Department archives where they had a lot of really great correspondences where they just, it was clear that they were on the same page in terms of understanding literature's relationship to the state, the state's relationship to literature, precisely through the idea that its purpose is to bear ideology and spread it broadly to uh, across the face of the earth. And so I name this as Shunchuan that, well, Laosha obviously called it Shunchuan, but um, I say that the State Department also had a very Shunchuan idea of the function of literature that could also be pro- called propaganda, but at the time I think um, that idea was, was dissonant from how we think about propaganda today. So Laosha is working with a group of American writers in this chapter uh, based at the Yaddo Colony. And in particular, he's working with Agnes Smedley and Ida Pruitt. But Ida Pruitt, the relationship that he develops as co-translators with Ida Pruitt, as we've mentioned um, briefly earlier in this conversation, was really fascinating. So they worked together to translate his novel Sushi Tong Tong into English. And the account of their process is actually fascinating and the ways that you're kind of drawing some of that account from the archival materials we were talking about is also really fascinating. So for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the chapter, Richard, can you talk a little bit about what you take to be some of the most interesting aspects of their process of co-translation and the way that you um, are kind of drawing some of that out from these materials from the Radcliffe Library? Um. Yeah, I would say the the most important thing I learned about doing this research is it really put put into question my ideas of authorship, <laughs> in that um, that their collaboration was so intimate and so close, um, and this was part of the problem because then who gets credit as the author? But um, they were really not just co-translating but co-writing together, um, and the story is really transformed. So the English language version, uh, the Yellow Storm of Sushi Tong Tong, is quite different um, from the Chinese version. And I think you can really think of the English language version as itself a kind of autonomous novel. Um, and um, another important thing, and I feel like this is a real challenge for Chinese literary history, um, that I find it amazing, truly amazing, that um, through this process, uh, one of Lao Shui's well-known novels called The Drum Singers was um, originally written in English, uh, for, uh, which is amazing. Um, and then later he translated it back into Chinese. And when I did research, um, no one really talks about that. But it basically that novel was really written in this hothouse of co-translation uh, where Laosha had a lot of ideas and uh, he worked them out with Pruitt. But it was originally written to be published in English, and the original manuscript is an English language text. And so the fact that a canonical novel in Chinese was originally written in English um, is, again, mind-blowing to me. Um, if, you know, someone said Mark Twain, you know, like Huck Finn was originally written in French, you know, that would that'd be completely insane. So, um, so yeah, I, I think, and, and I think there's a lot of examples like this within these circuits of transnational collaboration that um, I think should, not only in the Chinese context, but just in literary history in general, I think should put a lot of pressure on how we define national literatures and even what an author is. Mm-hmm. 
Right. So Pruitt actually doesn't read Chinese, right? So, yeah. she, but she can. She's fluent in spoken Chinese. So, am, am I getting this right that they would sit together and he would speak and she would write down or sort of translate the English version of what she heard him saying? Right? Is that yes? Yes. Okay. So this was really um, uh, fraught, as we were talking about before, because it seems that Pruitt wanted to kind of Americanize or wanted to avoid Americanizing the work too much, which winds up producing a kind of Chinglish that he wasn't super happy with. Right. right. So can you talk a little bit about those kind of competing interests among the co-translators or co-translators? Um, yeah. Um, the main thing is um, Pruitt was um, an old fashioned Orientalist in a good sense in that she was a good scholar of China. China. She knew a lot about China, um, had excellent spoken language skills, um, and just really loved China in the, again, kind of the, the good old-fashioned idea of Orientalism. Um, but obviously, this is at odds with um, Laosha, who um, in some ways had some modernist ambitions uh, um, and definitely had uh, a modern <laughs> notion of China. And so his ambitions was really to write things um, in Chinese and to translate them into English to count as very um, interesting modern literature. So a novel like Divorce, to me, is a very interestingly, you know, very stylistically and content-wise interesting novel. Um, but the, the miscommunication is that Pruitt really wanted, thought that she was helping Laosha by uh, making his stuff sound more kind of archaically like a nine, you know, like a Qing novel. Um, and she thought that, that she was protecting his culture in that way. Whereas Laosha obviously saw it as a kind of uh, a, a bad version of Orientalism that she was putting him into a box. Um, and so that happens a lot. And that's, um, and that's an interesting genealogy for, um, you know, American Orientalism, but also just the limits of um, multiculturalism in America. How much autonomy can you give to a minority writer uh, to be him or herself? So, um, and yeah, it's, 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 it, it pre figures a lot of Asian American writing that happens in the seventies and eighties where publishers are putting profound pressure on Asian writers to sound more Chinese or whatever, and they think that they're helping them sell books, but it's actually just sort of exoticizing. So as we come to the conclusion of our conversation, we also come to the epilogue of the book. Now, in the epilogue, among other things, you're reflecting on the consequences of Laosha ultimately leaving the U.S. to go back to China. And you pose the question or sort of repose the question and use it um, to create a space to think with. The question is, what if he had chosen to stay in the U.S., right? What if Laosha had not left the U.S. to go back to China? Um, so I think since this is the point at which the book concludes, um, this is a useful way for us to consider um, how to conclude as well. So Richard, can you talk a little bit about that question for you? In what ways is this question, what if Laosha had chosen to stay in the U.S., generative um, in terms of the goals that you have for the book? Um, yeah, you know, and it's, it's really, to me, sets up thinking about um, the meaning of this history for the period that would follow the PRC period in China, the Cold War period in America, in that that counterfactual question of what happens if Laosha had actually accepted the U.S. State Department's offer of citizenship instead of going back to China to become a major cultural figure in the Maoist regime. Um, yeah, I, I think if we trace out that counterfactual, we can start understanding the meaning of this history for 
the two things I'm interested in, the emergence of Asian American literature in the 60s and 70s, um, as well as uh, the emergence of PRC literature. Um, also in that period, you could start, that counterfactual starts articulating some vital links, which is um, that we usually don't think of these things as completely antithetical. So the woman warrior has this long screed against uh, communist China and its you know first pages. So we don't usually think of these things as connected. But um, through Laosha, we can start remembering that um, that these things can be connected or conceptually connected uh, in terms of he was very close to staying. So um, if he had stayed, he would have probably become involved with, uh, you know, he was such a cultural activist, he probably would have become involved with uh, the emergence of Asian American literature in California in the 60s and 70s. Uh, he might have, you know, articulated connections to Maoist China, uh, a lot of things that are muted in these histories um, that are very subtle, so like the subtle, some subtle liberal, liberalist ideas in PRC literature or some muted, you know, very strong left wing or even, um, you know, communist ideas in the emergence of Asian American literature. Things are quite muted. If you really try to put Laosha counterfactually at their intersection, um, in my opinion, and the book tries to make this, makes this wager, the epilogue makes this wager that um, both PRC literature and Asian American literature just look somewhat different uh, in relation to each other, but also autonomously. If you take seriously this interwar history um, as the basis for thinking about how those two things are still connected, even after the, no- the nominal disintegration of this community by 1915. So that to me is a real value, that counterfactual question. So, Richard, we're now at the conclusion of our conversation, and there's so much more that we could talk about, right, in any of the chapters, not just in the Robeson chapter, but also in the others. Um, but is there anything in particular that didn't come up in the course of the conversation that you would want to put on the table or mention for listeners? Um, yeah, I want to tell you about my favorite anecdote from this comes up a little bit in the it's almost like a joke, but. I mean, it's just it's hilarious, but also super interesting. And I think it's a good um, example of the delights I found in doing the archival research. And so, you know, I, you know, Carla, I know you do extensive archival stuff. It's a real joy doing that work because I always say the archive is always more interesting than the stuff you can imagine in your brain. Um, it's just crazy. Uh, and so anyone, you know, on the cusp of doing archival research, um, you know, I think it's going to be a real joy for you. But um, so I was in the FBI archives. Um, I, you know, I had I had a set because the FBI was spying um, on Smedley. And so it was one of the archives that I was looking into just to acquire, you know, more more um, materials. And um, I found this one report that an FBI agent had filed where he's basically describing like day 300 of spying on Agnes Fenley <laughs> at, at the Yaddo Writers Colony. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and then he kept on saying, he's like, um, in one of his notes, he writes um, that uh, Smedley is spending a lot of time with this Chinese friend named Mr. Shu, uh, M-R dot S-H-O-E, literally Mr. Shu. And he keeps on talking about Mr. Shu. And like Mr. Shu is like some well-known leftist in um, – in China, we have to keep an eye on this Mr. Shu. Uh, I was like, who the, you know, who is this Mr. Shu? Uh, and I read more, and I finally put together that it's Laosha, that it was like, – um, and I, I love this for a couple of reasons. One, I love this anecdote because um, I did not expect chapters one and five to kind of circle back on each other. So chapter one is Agnes Medley, chapter five is Laosha, and it, it, it really confirmed my intuition that this group was really a group. And so that was nice. Another interesting thing, I don't really get to talk about in the book, but um, 
this makes for good political history um, that, uh, you know, it was the it was the State Department that facilitated this, you know, the, this exchange and for Laosha to come. And it's like the FBI was at cross purposes. You know, they saw him as a threat, whereas the State Department had invited him as a guest of the state. So that was interesting. And I don't I'm not really much of a um, State Department historian. So but but, um, but there's something to be made about that. That was interesting to me. Um, but uh, but yeah, just the kind of. Um, you know, uh, dissonances and yeah, dissonance and weirdness of of history. You know that um, I just love that. Right, that was just really crazy to me, and um, I think that gets into like a footnote, chapter five. I just I tried really hard to put it in, but and, and you know, as you're as you're re- re- revising a book, you have to make it very lean and very serious, so you can't you have to cut out the kind of jokes. <laughs> Um, but I, yeah, that kind of was sad to me. I couldn't <laughs> include that like in the introductory part of that chapter. But I love that. I love that. It's so that crazy. itself would make the basis for a fabulous humorous novel, wouldn't it? Just tracing this FBI yeah. agent, like a novel built entirely around <laughs> the experience of this guy who's like Mr. Shu, like day 300 or whatever. Yes, somebody please write that novel and I will read it and interview you. So Richard, if you feel like getting into fiction writing... Think right, about right. this. So, totally. so whether or not the next uh, project is fiction writing, um, now that the book is out, what's next for you? What are you currently working on now? What's currently inspiring you? Uh, yeah, I'll try to be uh, pithy. So um, anyone actually interested in this can, like, you know, check out some of my writing or my webpage. Um, but, yeah, so um, I got really interested in understanding what happened, like, after this group disintegrated. So the short version of this is I'm working on – um, basically a sequel that focuses on the Cold War period, uh, again, studying um, U.S. East Asia relations, but primarily um, Taiwan and also South Korea, basically, um, you know, the post-colonial satellites of, um, of China and their relationship to America. And I'm interested in, you know, again, looking at a circle of figures, um, primarily uh, a group of um, East Asian writers from post-colonial East Asian nations who came to study creative writing, uh, in America as a kind of key protagonist for the story about, uh, again, the evolving nature of U.S.-East Asia cultural relations. And I'm basically interested in um, how the institution becomes a central mode of that relation, whereas in the interwar period, as we're talking about, it's more of these sort of free-flowing social networks. And I, and I find it really interesting that all that goes away and it's all replaced by the institution, whether it's the University of Iowa, the State Department. And um, there's some, but I'm also interested in the, the continuities. Um, I think, uh, you know, we often think of 1950 as this radical rupture in history, but um, we can already start seeing um, in my chapter five, the seeds of the importance of the institution as brokering those relations. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in both in the discontinuity and continuities with the transnational interwar period with this sort of institutional Cold War period. Um, and, yeah, and also just, you know, the, the main keywords are thinking about um, from, a hist- you know, this idea of communications, which ties into history of science with that remains of interest of the mind, but also what does it mean to be creative? Uh, what is writing and how this all ties into um uh, the U.S.'s evolving attempt to develop relations with uh, places like Taiwan and South Korea after the war. So that's basically, yeah, the, the short version of what I'm up to. And it's a sequel, more or less. Yeah. Well, best of luck with that work, Richard. And I hope you do make time in the context of that work to take a break and write this novel. Yeah, <laughs> Agent and Mr. Shu, and I'll check back with you on yeah. that. But thank you so much. Um, congratulations on the book. And it's really been a pleasure to talk with you about it. 
Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much for reading so carefully in this uh, conversation. Um, really enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you next time.